Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Watertown Evangelical Free Church. It's a great day to worship here. I'm Alicia Holmstrom, and I'm the administrative assistant here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church, and we're so glad all of you are here. If you're new this morning, um, be sure to take a look at the pamphlets pamphlets in front of you and um, put your information in, as we'd love to get to know you more. So um, I will pray for us. Dear Lord, it is not lost on all of us what is going on around the world and here in Israel. We're so thankful that in the end, Lord, you're going to win and you will overcome. I pray that you bless this time of worship and bless Pastor Bruce as he gets up and preaches. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. And as the kids go off to uh, Sunday school, those that are fifth grade and under. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the senior pastor here. If you are new, uh, if you are checking us out for the first time, uh, or maybe you've been here for a while, uh, welcome. We are glad you are here. And this morning we are starting a study in the book of Colossians. I'm excited about that. Um, we're wrapping up a, a series called Capital Letters, where we looked at God's definition of words and Kind of what we were trying to talk through is this idea that what I think about words doesn't matter as much as how God defines them. How God defines truth, how God defines himself, how God defines goodness, how God defines the church. That matters more than what I think. Because I think a lot of things and some of those things are wrong. And it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks. And I think that that was a great segue into this one this series in the book of Colossians because that gives us this great foundation. And the worship team sang a song, A Firm Foundation. And I think that's a great song to introduce us because that's one of the things we're gonna be talking about this morning is having that firm foundation, having that foundation of faith, a firm foundation and, and having that understanding. Um, I was at a conference uh, just a couple weeks ago and I heard a gentleman by the name of Dr. Scott Manich, and he spoke on lessons in life and ministry from Martin Luther, which I know for many of you, that sounds like a conference you would like to attend. Um, but it was, it, was, it was, I very much was excited to go. It was, a, it was a positive experience. It was a good conference. And he said this, he said, what we believe about God affects how we, le how we live. What we believe about God affects how we live. And that's a theme that I think came up as well in the last couple of weeks. If we believe God is good, it should affect how we live. If we believe what God says about himself, that should affect how we worship. And that is gonna be something we're gonna see moving forward in Colossians that what we believe about God affects how we live. And, and that's a, just a truth across the board. Right? But he was looking specifically at the life of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, he argued, lived in this gray zone of history. If you know anything about the, the life of Martin Luther, you know that uh, he came of age kind of at the tail end of the Middle Ages and brought about the Reformation. 
He, he, he brought about, and not just him, that was kind of the point of the, the whole conversation. It wasn't just him, but, but the Reformation started. And so he was in this in-between time. He was in this gray zone of history. He was in this time where, where there was a lot of chaos and a lot of upheaval and a lot of change. And change that, that for us, we take some of those things for granted, like the, like the printing press. Oh, that was new technology that they didn't really understand the implica implications and ramifications of the printing press. And so it was this time of, of, of rapid change and upheaval. And he lived in this gray zone. And I think there are times that individually and collectively as a church and as a society, we move into these gray zones all the time. There might be a time in your life right now that it might feel like a time of upheaval and chaos. It might feel like things are falling apart. Maybe collectively, uh, I know this church has walked through some of those recently as they transitioned from one senior pastor to an interim to a new senior pastor. These times where, where things can seem to be in flux. And so we can look at people like Martin Luther and we can look at other people who have navigated chaos and we can learn lessons from them. And that's kind of what we're gonna do here with Colossians is the church in Colossae, the city of Colossae, I think had a lot of things going on that we as Christians today can relate to. There's some parts of it that is gonna be completely foreign to us and we're not gonna understand, but there's gonna be other things that I think if we look at their story and what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians, we might step back and go, you know what? They're not that different from me. What they're facing and what I'm facing, there are lessons, there are lessons. And so when we find ourselves in a similar but not identical situation as somebody who has gone before, especially a believer, it is great to take an opportunity to look at their life, to look at what they did, to look at their letters or other writings and go, what are some lessons I can learn? And so I've titled this message, A Church on the Rise, because the people of Colossae, just like Martin Luther, were stuck in a time of transition when Paul wrote this letter, we can almost see the Colossian church balanced on a precipice. And they can go this way or they can go this way. Or, you know, maybe you don't like that idea. You like the idea of two diverging trails in a yellow wood or something like that. And they can go this way or they can go that way. And we can kind of picture Colossians, the people standing there going, which way are we going to go? And maybe you're in a crossroads like that. Which way, God, which way should I go? And I think there's some, some things we can see here. And I think uh, as I look at our last series, Capital Letters, I, that was a challenging series for me. I kind of struggled with that one, specifically with putting them together. And I, and I tried to share that often, early on in the series and throughout, that you know whatever the topic is, they're big topics. And to expect me personally to expect myself to be able to adequately communicate everything about truth that the Bible says is an unrealistic expectation of myself. And there's going to be some gaps. And, and that's one of the challenges whenever you do a series like that that centers around a topic. I mean, I could pick any topic that we as a church should talk about. If I wanted to talk about marriage, you know, there are people who spent their life looking at what does the Bible say about marriage? And for me to presume that I can get up and talk about it in 10 minutes and 30 minutes and, you know, there's the keys to marriage, right? It's a little, it's a little ridiculous. But I also mentioned that as we go through a book study, there's also a pitfall there. And one of the pitfalls that we can fall into when we look at a book like Colossians is the assumption that we understand perfectly what's happening. That we read it and we read the book of Colossians and we go, oh, 
It says this, clearly that means this to me. Problem solved, move on. And, and we can't do that. We have to be careful because, I don't know if you know this, but Paul didn't write a book of Colossians for us. He wrote it for this church called Colossians. He, he wrote a letter to them, and we're reading that letter. And we're not Colossians, at least I'm not. I don't think anybody here grew up in Colossae. Um, and so for us to presume that we understand fully what Paul is talking about is kind of like reading somebody else's mail and presuming that you know exactly what they mean, right? If you read through some of the text messages between me and some of my friends, you'd kind of look at me weird and go, what? there's a whole lot of Star Wars memes going on in here and I don't understand all the references. And, and there's a little bit of that we have to be careful of here as we look at Colossians. And, and, and so we, we have to do due diligence. We have to look at it and, and truly seek to understand what was Paul really trying to say? Because I'm not Colossian. And, and, and so that's our challenge. And so that's the duty when we dig into a new book is to understand some of that context. And so I'm going to get into some of that context this morning. And for some of you that are, you know, history nerds, uh, this might be exciting to you. Like, excellent. I'm going to get some good data. I'm going to understand some facts. I'm going to go win at uh, Bible Trivia Night, you know, next week, because I'm sure you all get together and do that. Um, and yeah, there's some facts here, but please don't let it be just facts. We need to dig in because that's what we are called to do. If we are going to look into God's Word, we need to dig in. We need to actually seek to understand what it is saying. That's part of understanding God's Word. So I would, I would caution people like, you know, I, I do enjoy this kind of stuff, and I would caution people like me, don't let it just be data. Don't let it just sit in your brain. Don't just go, oh, I now have another fact. This should compel our hearts. The data that we get about history and the church and about the books of the Bible should compel our hearts to move forward. And if you're a person who, you know, you've already heard me say things like history and data and your eyes are glazing over and you're kind of, you know, thinking maybe now is a good time to get caught up on that nap, um, I would encourage you to hear this as something that maybe God is speaking to us through church history, through this book, and that maybe, maybe hearing some of this context stuff will help us do that. So bear with us this morning. And be open, to hear, be open to hearing how this data can help us take our next step in faith. And hopefully it's not just data. And so we're going to start, we're going to open up Colossians and we're going to read the book of Colossians together. And we're going to start with the first two verses in Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And so first of all, I want to stop there and acknowledge that Colossians is a letter. I've kind of talked about that already. It's kind of like opening somebody else's mail. Colossians is a letter. It was written to a group of people by a person. And we're going to, we're going to kind of look into some of this context stuff because it does matter. It, it wasn't like, you know, today I can send a letter and I can write a letter and I can stick a stamp on it and walk 10 feet out my driveway across the street, put it in a mailbox and trust that it'll get to the person I sent it to. It wasn't like that back then. You know, and, and some of this is going to come back later as we dig into it that, that letters didn't travel that way. They had to be hand carried. Paper was a rare commodity. Ink was not something that you had laying around. This is a big deal. 
the fact that Paul wrote a letter, and, and, and so we need to see it as such. Colossians is a letter of love. It's a letter of love simply because he took the time to do it. This is a big deal. You know, we get in trouble in today's day and age with our instant communication because sometimes we can send a text that we, you know, who's gotten that text from somebody that uh, they meant to send it to somebody else and clearly they were not thinking or maybe they sent it rashly. Um, it was a little safer back then. You couldn't have that instant communication, but it makes those words that much more valuable. And so it was written by Paul. Paul is our author. He is an apostle. And I'm not going to say much here because we know a lot about Paul, but I will point out that it wasn't just Paul. If you read in there, it's Paul and Timothy. And there's going to be some stuff that immediately, if you're a Colossian Christian reading this letter, there's going to be some stuff that comes to your mind instantly that we don't pick up on because we weren't there, right? There's, there's a couple of things that, that, that aren't going to trigger in our head the way it will. And we get some hints later on, but for them, it's instantaneous. And so I want to share some of, some of that. And one of those things is the fact that Paul is in prison right now. And he's going to mention that later on, you know, remember me and my chains kind of comments later on. But they know that instantly. When they get a letter from Paul, they know it came from Paul in prison. So when he says Paul and Timothy, we know that Timothy is involved in this letter writing because Paul is in prison. He's in chains. And so Timothy was most likely writing it and scribing it for him. But there was also most likely some interaction between them. Paul and Timothy are pretty close. Right? Timothy, we can't discount the fact that Timothy had some influence in Paul's life as well. And so there's some back and forth potentially through, from them in this, that comes out in this letter. But he also calls himself an apostle. And don't miss that title. That's a significant title. He's claiming some authority here. And again, we'll know later when we get to it, and, and we'll talk about it again this morning, but Paul didn't start this church. So him claiming the title of apostle is a significant thing. He didn't start the church in Colossae. A lot of the letters we have, like the one to Corinth, he started that church. To the one in Galatians, he started that church. There's a natural authority he has there for Paul to say an apostle here to a church that he's never been to. And he didn't start. It's a significant thing. And not a wrong thing, but it is significant. But he writes it as well to Colossae, and I want to share a couple of quick questions or a couple of quick comments on the culture of the city of Colossae. Because again, if you lived in Colossae and you got this letter from Paul, you would know this stuff in your head. And so when Paul makes some comments, things would register with you that we might miss. And one of those things is that the city of Colossae is a city in decline, it's kind of a part of a three-city area, and we have the Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae are kind of all three towns uh, within range of each other. The, you know, six miles to Laodicea and another like five miles beyond that to Hierapolis, give or take. They're pretty close to each other, and, and Colossae used to be the significant city. It was the kind of the Roman capital of the area, and it's in decline now. It's been replaced by Laodicea and Hierapolis, and those are the, the big up-and-coming towns. Those are the significant communities. And Colossae is kind of fading. And kind of the only reason it's still relevant is that a trade route runs through it. And so as a city, they're holding on to kind of their history and their, their significance. We used to be. We used to be a big deal. 
and, and, and we're kind of waning. It's also a heavily Greek community, and yes, it's part of the Roman Empire, but if you look on our map, they have to travel through Greece to get to Rome. They were very much a Greek community. Uh, but Rome is heavily influenced by Greek thought and the Greek language. And so if you grew up in Colossae, even if you were Jewish, and there were a lot of people that grew up in these towns, ever since the Old Testament, the, the diaspora, some, some people of Israel had been scattered around the known world. So, so some Jewish people would have lived in Colossae for generations, growing up in a Greek culture, in a Greek community, teaching and speaking in Greek, reading their Old Testament in Greek, not Hebrew. And there's a deep Greek influence, and not just in language, but in culture and philosophy that has influenced Rome. And anybody who's studied, you know, ancient history knows that the Greek, you know, methodology of thinking and the Greek theology even of their pagan deities influenced Rome and Roman culture. And so there's this heavy, heavy Greek influence, not only in the community, but in the church, uh, they would have spoken Greek, which is why most of the New Testament is written in Greek, right? That was the language they spoke. Because we need to remember that this letter really isn't written to the city, right? It's written to the people in the church in Colossae, and most of them would have had some common understanding of Jewish culture because at that time when, when Paul travels around, and again, I know he didn't start this church, I just said that, but we can see from his methodology that when he showed up in a town, the first place he went was the synagogue, was the Jewish place of worship. And so while it may have been in the Greek language that they spoke and worshiped and read their scriptures, it was still very Jewish, and so they would show up there and they would tell about this Messiah, Jesus, this Messiah we've been looking for. He came in the person of Jesus. And sometimes the, the synagogue would respond well and sometimes it wouldn't and sometimes it would be divided. But generally that synagogue was kind of the root of the church, the early church. And so it's this heavy Jewish theology influence in the early church and rightly so. And so, so here, this letter is written by Paul, claiming the title of apostle, to this church that's in a community that's in decline, in a society that has this heavy outside influence, but with this deep theological history, and in a time of massive change and flux. And I think we can resonate. I think we can look at that and go, I understand. But given also the large Greek influence, there's a lot of loosely affiliated in the church, which again, I think is something that we're aware of. We know what it means to have people loosely affiliated with their faith. We, we know them at work and at school. We have people who, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I kind of have this basic understanding of my faith and I go, to, I go to church on Christmas and Easter and what's the big deal? And there would have been a lot of that going on in this world as well, both in the Jewish and in the Christian world. People going, oh, okay, Jesus, sure, why not? And people going, yeah, yeah, Messiah, Yahweh, God, I'm, I'm in. But I'm, I'm going to kind of keep it surfacy and keep it safe. And there's also one last thing that I think we tend to miss when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's the group identity. The idea that we live in a, in a society where it's all about the individual, we are very individualistic and individually focused and what I think and what I believe and what I value. And, and we get offended at some level when somebody comes and says, you, meaning you all have done this or you all have done that. We go, hey, that's not me. 
That's not me. And they would have been a lot more comfortable with those statements because they would have understood a group identity better than we would. We tend to kind of rebel against that, and that would have been very intrinsic to them. As, as one historian puts it, whereas contemporary Westerners tend to define themselves and their identity, first of all, as individuals, ancient Mediterranean cultures tended to define their self primarily in terms of group membership. Where I fit in the group defines me more than who I am personally. And all of this sounds just like kind of a unique history lesson. It's really not because what that should do is color how we look at this book of Colossians. Given that their identity is tied up in their community, we see a church that may be struggling. Struggling with feelings of impotence and waning importance. Do we matter? Are we significant? I mean, I can, I can almost hear them wrestling with, because again, these letters were written, and yes, they were letters to specific people, but as we'll see later, they were meant to be shared. And so it's likely that the church in Colossae knew about the church in Corinth that Paul started and knew about the church in Galatia that Paul started and knew about the church uh, in, in, in all these communities where Paul had been and, and all these letters going out to them that they've been encouraged by the apostles to read and going, but we're not a Paul church. Paul didn't start us. And our community isn't significant. In fact, it's declining. And do we even matter? I mean, I can almost hear these questions. And these are questions I think that plague us today. Do I matter? Does it matter? And so it is to this group of people as a church that we see Paul send a challenging letter, but a letter deep with love and significance. And I think we can see some parallels today. And our first reminder should be that we as a church, we as a community like Colossae are loved. God loves this church. And while there might be some things that we as a church may be challenged to work on and challenged to think differently about, we as a church are deeply loved in the same way the church at Colossae was loved. And we are significant because of our identity in Christ even if we are not significant in the eyes of our community and our world. And so like I said, the church in Colossae is perched on a precipice. On one side is decline, to decline away into insignificance along with their community. And the other, on the other side is a chance to rise up, to rise up and be a church of significance regardless of where their community is at, calling them into the future God has for them if they will stay the course. But thankfully, the Colossian church does not stand on its own. It has a foundation of faith. And the, the passage in Colossians will continue, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so the second thing I think we should learn about the city of Colossae and the church of Colossae is that 
that Colossians is a community with a firm foundation. And just like we sang a song this morning about having our firm foundation, the Colossian church had a firm foundation and it was in Jesus Christ. And Paul is unpacking a little bit their foundation, telling them, here are the things that you have going for you. You have a lot of things going for you. Don't get too wrapped up in your significance in the wider world. Don't get too wrapped up in your significance in your community or your community's significance. You have a firm foundation. And like the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians is a unique book in that it does not completely stand on its own. It's not all alone by itself. Given Paul's status as a prisoner, not only can we lump it together with the other books we know that Paul wrote in prison and kind of give us some context what Paul was going through and what the wider Christian world was going through, but, but we're going to see as we read it that, that there were other letters written at the exact same time that we can look at. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Now, again, letters back then had to be carried by hand, and so you generally task somebody with it, and because there was no letter carrier, if you were writing a letter to another person in the same area, you'd ask them to take both. And, and Paul here, just a glimpse into history, we know of at least three letters that this person carried one of which we don't have. We've lost it. Okay, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. We don't have it anymore. For some reason, uh, through God's work in church history and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that letter is lost. It's not part of our canon of scripture. We don't include it. And we trust that there's a reason for that. Not that it was incorrect or wrong or whatever, but that for whatever reason, it's not part of our Bible. And just for those of you that are really into unique history facts, a really unique, interesting history fact is we have two letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, right? First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. We actually think he probably wrote four, and what we have is number two and number four. We don't have one and three, which is an interesting thing to think about. Like, I wonder what he wrote in those letters. You know, maybe we get a different glimpse of Paul. Maybe he was more of a jokester in those letters and we lost him. I have no idea. But we don't have this letter. We don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. It's gone. But we do have another letter based on some other evidence. Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Wow, who is Onesimus? Well, if you read the book of Philemon, you'll find out that Onesimus was a slave. Onesimus was a slave who escaped, who ran away, uh, who ran away from his, his master, who is Philemon. And he went to Paul. And when he got to Paul, he became a believer. And Paul is sending him back. But he's sending him back with word to Philemon that, hey, you know, you really shouldn't have Onesimus as a slave. And that's the letter to Philemon. And so imagine that you're at church and this person walks in and with them is Onesimus and you're Philemon. And here's the person that ran away. And by law, back then, just as it was in U.S. history, you had the right to kill that person for deserting. And they walk into church and they have some letters. One of which is a letter to the whole church and one of which is a letter to you saying, hey, consider how you're treating this person. And again, these letters were a little more public than they are now. 
right? If I showed up in church and started handing out letters, the expectation in our church is not that you would stand up and read them publicly. I was a little more public back then. There's a deeper story going on here, and we would love for our story of Scripture to be simple and clean and easy and obvious, and it's not. We have to wrestle with things like slavery in Philemon and Paul's dealing with it and ways that sometimes we're going to feel really good about and other times we're going to wrestle with and go, that doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel good. But it's still God's word. And, and I think we, we forget and we start to think that these books were meant to be theology textbooks for us. They're a way for us to get our doctrine right. And that's not all that they were. They were letters to real people. And they were letters to real people in real issues. And he is writing in love with deep compassion. But the positive is they don't stand alone as a church either because they have this church next door in Laodicea and they're supposed to be encouraging each other. They're supposed to be bonded together. And once you've read this letter, go, go read it to them in Laodicea and take their letter and read it here because I think there's things in there that you should hear. And again, we don't know what that is, but we do know that they had this community around them. They had this foundation of faith. They didn't try and stand on their own. And I think that for us is a lesson we can take away from this. If we want to have a firm foundation of faith, we can't presume to stand on our own. We need other believers. We need other churches in our life. And we, we can get kind of wrapped up into the, that being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus and being a church is all about right doctrine. And I don't want to downplay the importance of doctrine, but, but we like to have the checklist. I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, therefore I am right. And what we're seeing here is that it's about relationships, it's about community, it's about interaction, it's about being together in that. If God wanted us to have simply doctrine, he would have shared with us simply doctrine. But that's not what we see. We see this idea of a relationship, of community, of interaction, and so for us to sit there and think that we can go it on our own is foolish. And if we stand still on a firm foundation, just like a house, right? If I have a house and, and I buy it and it's in a good, good condition, but I stand still and do nothing to maintain that, eventually, eventually it falls apart. And so just because we as a church might have a firm foundation of faith, if we stand still, if we don't do anything with that, eventually we'll find ourselves falling into lethargy. And so discerning the scriptures can take effort, but it's worth the effort because it gives us some direction, some way to go. And so we can celebrate the health of the Colossians or the health of Watertown Evangelical Free Church, and we can still know, like the Colossians, that there's issues to address. Oftentimes we like to think that it's A or B. We're either a healthy church and everything is great or we're unhealthy and everything is bad and needs to be fixed. And we do that with a lot of things, right? We look at it and we go, my job is great or my job is awful. There's no in between. And it's rarely that simple. And we can have a good job and we can have good friends and we can have a good family and we can have a good marriage and all those things and still have work to do in those areas. It takes maintenance, ongoing and it's the same with the Colossian church. And so Paul is addressing some of this. He's saying, hey, you have a firm foundation. And I think I could say the same about our church. We have a firm foundation. And he highlights a couple of things if we go back to the passage. One of them he highlights is your faith in Jesus Christ. They have their faith founded in Jesus Christ, not in works, 
not in right theology, not in their status as a community, not in their Jewish heritage. Their faith is founded in Christ alone. And we want the same here. We have a good foundation here as a church. And, and, and it's tempting to look at our theological history and go, that's why we have a firm foundation. And we owe a debt of gratitude to those who have gone before us. But it's not because of our history that our foundation is based on. It's based on Christ. And the fact that we've been here for over 130 years, the fact that we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the fact that we're whatever, is not as important as our foundation of being based upon Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. And the same with Colossians, your faith in Jesus Christ. But he also says your love for all of God's people. Out of this foundation of faith pours a love for all of God's people. And, and that's not just a, a cliche that Paul throws in there. Oh yeah, you know, like I, I do that, right? I'll write these emails or letters or text messages. And sometimes I'll throw in that, well, I gotta say something like, hey, thanks for that. Great to know. Now you guys are gonna question every email you ever get from me. Does he actually care, right? But you know, we'll throw those comments in. Hey, great to hear from you. And sometimes we actually mean it, but sometimes we just type those words. We can be confident that Paul didn't just write those words. He does want them to love all people. It's not like, hey, be kind, be nice, be good. Something we might tell our kids on their way out the door, right? It's not just that. Because one of the elements of Colossians that I plan to highlight in our series is this idea that we are unified with all other believers. And we talked about that when we talked about the church, that the church is all believers throughout time and throughout history. Um, and that's not our definition of believers, that's God's definition. And so we need some humility in that, acknowledging that there are gonna be some people that we think are believers that might not actually be believers. And there might be people that we don't think are believers that might actually be believers in Jesus Christ. We are not the deciders of that, God is. And so, but we are called to love all believers. And we are called to stand with other believers in faith. And so while Paul is going to dig into some great theological stuff that I think we can dig into and talk about and should talk about, I'm also going to couple that with, throughout this series, we're going to look at some historic church creeds. Some of these old statements of faith that the church universal has held on to for many, many years. As a way to remind us that we don't stand alone. We stand on a firm foundation, but we don't stand alone. We stand with other believers throughout history, and we can share these things in common. And there are going to be some people that we might struggle with, that we might not really like to hang out with, that might worship a little different than us, or look a little different than us, or act a little different than us, and maybe even in some cases believe some things that we struggle with that might still be believers. And we in humility need to look at them and go, I can still stand with you and call you brother and sister because of what we do share in common. I need to love them. Love for all God's people. And finally, hope. Paul talks about his faith and love that springs from the hope in the gospel. And for Paul, faith, hope, and love are commonly linked together, as in they work together. And so we have this hope, this recurring theme, and we'll see it here in Colossians that this hope is not a hope for something that will happen, a hope for a desired outcome. It's hope in Jesus Christ. Again, if our firm foundation is Jesus Christ, then our hope is based in him and what he is doing in us and in our world, regardless of whether we see the outcomes we want and what a reassuring thing to hear. 
Because we can look at Haiti and we can look at Jerusalem and we can look at uh, Russia and Ukraine and we can look at all these places and we can have a hope for something we want, a desired outcome that we think makes sense, a desired outcome that we want. And if we put our hope in that and it doesn't happen that way, it calls us to, we start to question, is God really in control? Because our hope is based on an outcome instead of on who he is. And trusting that if something happens, God is not standing there wringing his hands going, oh shoot, that's not what I wanted. God is completely in control. And our hope is in him. And when that desired outcome doesn't happen, we go, I still have faith in Jesus Christ. And that is my hope, regardless of what happens. And I do want to, as Ed was praying for Haiti, I, I did get an email update and I just didn't get a chance to share it this morning, that the, the, the missing worker at Haiti Teen Challenge who was kidnapped was released and he is safe. And so, you know, there's something that we prayed for that God did give us the positive outcome, but even if that, that young man hadn't been released, if our hope was based in him being released and he wasn't, would we still have hope? Absolutely, we should have hope. It is in Christ, though, not in a desired outcome that we think, because we are limited. And this belief in faith and love and hope flies in the face of a simple understanding of the gospel. If we think that the gospel is just about right theology, we are going to struggle in this area. Because this is about a heart issue. And we want to read our Bibles and find verses that say, this is right and this is wrong and do this and don't do that. And it's not always that simple. And Colossians and other scriptures paint a different picture. Following God is not a simple checklist of faith. It requires wisdom and discernment and action. In short, it's like any other relationship. If we have a relationship with God, relationships take effort. And following Jesus takes effort. And Paul is going to go on in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so as we look at this, we also see that not only was Colossians a church with a firm foundation, it was a, a church on the rise. Colossians was a church with huge potential standing in front of it. And if you've ever read the start to the book of Revelation, in Revelation, Paul writes these letters to all these seven churches. And they follow mostly a pretty basic formula. He says, to the church in this area, I write you this. And you're doing this well. Again, most of them. There's some that aren't doing anything well. But most of them, you're doing this really well. But then he says this phrase, but yet, and, he, and it's Jesus saying this, not John. When he writes it, it's, it's Jesus through John. Yet I hold this against you. Right? Yet I hold this against you. There's something that you need to work on. There's something that you're not doing right, well, correct, whatever. 
I hold this against you. And we get a little bit of that here, that Paul, Paul is writing a letter for a reason. He's sending them a letter because, because again, while they have this firm foundation, we still see them like, which way are we going to go? Because we have this, this history of faith behind us, but which way are we going to go? We have, we have two choices before you. And while their community is in decline, they have the option to rise above. Not in worldly standards, not in worldly position or power, but to live a life, as Paul says, to live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. Because Paul doesn't want to simply see this church survive. He wants to see it thrive. He wants to see it no matter what is going on in the world of the Colossians around them. He wants them to thrive. And he, he looks at him and he says, he says, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. It's easy to, to, to drift into apathy of faith. I have all the right stances on all the right doctrines, so now I'm just going to sit in apathy. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't stay in apathy. And, and so I want to ask us, like, what are we measuring our success by? Because it's really easy, especially in our individualistic world, to move into this uh, uh, measurement system, right? We want, we want the, the stats, is our success as followers of Jesus measured by our financial stability? Is it measured by our grades in school, our success at work, our accolades from friends and peers and coworkers? Is our success in the church measured by the number of people who come or the amount of money we get in the offering plate on a weekly basis or, or the number of check boxes that we get of people coming to know the Lord? And those are not bad things, but is that how we're measuring success? Are we looking at it going, we want to be a church that has all the checklists and all the scorecards and we're, we're, hitting, we're hitting all the right data points. When we measure our success, we are a successful church because I've been in churches. I have friends who've been in churches that on the outside look like everything is going right. Their attendance is up. People are coming to know the Lord and their money is up. And inside they're crumbling. How are we measuring our success? And Colossians here, the church, has the choice. Are we going to go into this, this Greek culture community that's in decline and, and find a way, and we're going to say what, what the people of the city want to hear, or are we going to stand for the gospel and measure our success based on our relationship with Jesus Christ? But Paul is warning us that there is more going on. To be a church like Colossae with a firm foundation is a good start, but to rise up to not remain stagnant, to step out with God requires more. And Paul calls them first to grow in all knowledge. Verse 9, the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And this is not just mere knowledge of the doctrine of God. This is like that idea of relational knowledge. And so we, we can get in, in our heads that it's all about the data. I know more about who God is. I know more doctrine. I know more right stances. I know more arguments. I know more whatever. And that's not what we see here. That's not the knowledge he's talking about. This is not mere knowledge. This is knowledge of God himself. And I've been watching a TV show recently called Long Way Up that tells the story of two guys riding motorcycles from the tip of Argentina all the way up through South America, Mexico into L.A., 
And I've been watching the show and getting to know these two people. It's, it's a real story. Uh, and I've been getting to know them. But nobody would actually be confused into thinking that I actually know them. Like, I know a lot about them. I know what they like. I know what they don't like. I know how their motorcycles are acting. Uh, I know one guy has already broken two legs before this trip, and so he's a little nervous. But I don't actually know him. Right? I know a lot about him, but I don't actually know him. And, and that's the distinction. And our passage highlights that we are to know, know God through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And we do this by growing in the knowledge of God, which may seem kind of like a catch-22. Know more about God, but don't just know more about God. But we have to not think of it as a circle, but like a corkscrew, like any relationship. I get to know somebody a little more, which allows me to take another step in, which allows me to know a little bit more, which allows me to take another step in. And I would doubt that there's anybody who's been in a long-term committed relationship with somebody who wouldn't say that they still get to know their spouse a little bit more after all these years. And it's the same with God. We need to take that next step to know a little bit more, to know a little bit more, to grow a little deeper and move beyond the data. When I was in high school, I took a class called AP US History, um, A Push. And uh, that was my first AP class, which for the record, I think is a foolish first AP class. For those of you that are in high school and might be aware of AP classes, AP US History is a challenging one, and it's the first one they allowed me to take as a sophomore. And I thought, this will be easy. I love data, I love history. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, ready to go. And I got there and did very, very poorly because the difference between high school history and college history is the difference between knowing that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in high school is fine. In college level classes, they wanna know why. Why did he sail? What were the implications of it? What did that affect? I was not ready for that transition. I did very, very poorly, um, to, the, to the point that I went to the teacher after one semester and I said, I just need to get out of this class without failing. And the teacher looked at me and he said, if you promise not to take second semester, I will give you a C minus. <laughs> I took that offer. I needed to take that offer. But that's what we are called to do. It's not about learning data and doctrine. It's about knowing why it's important and why it should affect how we live. If I know that God is God in my head, but don't let it affect how I live, I might as well not know it. If I know that we are called to worship God, but I don't let it become worship, I might as well not know it. And we can apply that to all these things. And so as we dig in throughout this whole series to what the Colossians are facing, I would encourage us to ask ourselves the same questions. What am I to do with this? How do I use this information to build onto my firm foundation of faith to rise above so that when I'm standing there at the precipice like Colossians and I have a choice of going into apathy and stagnation or to keep moving towards God, I'm gonna choose to keep moving towards God. How do I let it affect my life? And with our God, we see our goal as well to share in his inheritance in verse 12. 
because we have been rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. Our goal as a church and as followers of Jesus is not merely to know more about God, but to be deeply impacted by who he is so that we can deeply impact those around us. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you did not reveal yourself just in information, God, but that you have relationally engaged with us as believers. God, that you relationally engaged with our world, that you are not a God who is sitting out there completely separate. But God, that you deeply desire to know all of us here and all of, all of humanity. God, that you are calling us all to yourself. So Lord, help us to respond. Help us to turn to you in faith. God, help us to take that next step. God, that as we learn a little bit more about you every day, God, our relationship with you grows a little bit deeper. And so God, we thank you for how you're at work in our world. God, we thank you for how you've been at work in our church throughout history and how you will continue to be at work here. And God, I ask that you would be at work in all of our lives individually as well. I pray this in your name. Amen. A couple of quick things before we end this morning. If you are new to this church, uh, if you've recently started attending in the last six or nine months or so, and would like to just know a little bit more, uh, we are doing a new attenders lunch today. I uh, would welcome you to come to that. If you RSVP'd, great. If you didn't, we would still love to have you. Um, so please feel free to, to come and join us for that if you are new, just to get to know us a little bit, a little bit more. And as well, you'll notice in the back corner, all the signups are up and information for our harvest party. As we as a church seek to make an impact in our community and seek to share the relationship with Jesus Christ with those in our community who might not be there, um, that is one of the ways that we do that. And so I'd encourage you to look at that and look for opportunities to sign up. And then finally, uh, maybe you're in a spot where your faith is new to you, or maybe you just aren't sure what God is doing in your life and how God could use you. And I would encourage you, we have a new Gather to Grow group starting this Wednesday, led by Dennis on uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, I would encourage you to come and, and join that group where you can learn a little bit more about who God is, who he has created you to be, and how he has called you to serve in his world. That being said, I want to end with this uh, from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.